Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown show. A show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Edson Rivas was born in El Salvador, but has lived most of his life in Connecticut. Norwalk, Connecticut is home for Edson, where he not only lives, but makes a difference in his community as executive director of a Triangle Community Center. He started with the center as a volunteer, serving on various committees and in different board positions until he landed at the top, serving as board chairperson, bringing his professional experience and passion to the organization. What was supposed to be only an interim term as executive director changed when Edson threw his hat into the ring and the position became permanent. Triangle Community Center empowers and advocates for LGBTQ people in Connecticut through programming focused on health, community, and learning. Although housed in Norwalk, the center services all of Fairfield County and beyond. The center provides programs, clinical services, resources, and hotlines for members of the LGBTQ community, as well as community education and training. Edson took the reins during the pandemic, but has gone in each day to be there for community members. The center has hosted virtual events and small in-person activities, keeping the community safe and connected. There have been challenges, but also great opportunities to learn about the community and grow. More than just a center, Edson and the Triangle Community Center staff work to make it a safe, welcoming space and home for Connecticut's LGBTQ community. Edson, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? And is Norfolk your home? So uh, I'm doing well. And uh, just for the recording, my name is Edson. I use he, him pronouns. Um, okay. And Norwalk, Connecticut is our home base here. Um, and we sort of market ourselves as a community center for all of Fairfield County, which is quite large. However, we do have clients that sort of fall outside of those boundaries or geographical boundaries. So we do see clients from coming in from New York, coming in from other sort of uh, mm. counties within Connecticut itself. Mm-hmm. You know, often, that, and that's the thing that um, to me particularly about community centers is like sometimes you have people say, well, why would I support them that's not in my neighborhood? But 
we know as the LGBTQ plus community, you know, sometimes we're mobile. We don't know where mm-hmm. we're going to end up. And, you know, it sounds like you cover a, you, you cast a broad net so that people know they can come there. You know? Yes. Did you grow up in that area? I did, actually. Um, well, I was born in El Salvador, and I grew up in El Salvador for about nine years and came to the U.S. Mm-hmm. when I was nine. Um, and the rest of the time, I grew up in Greenwich, so I went through all of Greenwich public school systems. And then I did my uh, four years in university at the University of Connecticut uh, here in Connecticut. So I am Connecticut raised, <laughs> not born, but mm-hmm. Connecticut raised. So I'm very familiar with the area. Mm-hmm. What was it like growing up, I mean, not only um, your Latinx, but also LGBTQ in Connecticut? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that many people would think of, you know, I don't know what it is. Many people think of that part of the Northeast of being pretty vanilla, but we know it is. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, the, I mean, the the towns around here can get a little... Um, let's say monochromatic, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. But Greenwich itself was was diverse, um, whether it was uh, in terms of finances, uh, gender, or, you know, uh, race. It was a very diverse sort of uh, population, particularly in the public school systems. Um, And I came out, I would say, junior year in high school. um, And I don't think I had a big issue with coming out. Um, it wasn't necessarily something that was um, bad for me within the school system going to Greenwich High School. And we also had about five other individuals within our grade, uh, within our graduating class that were also LGBTQ identifying. So it, it kind of we had like a little group, I guess. Uh, we all didn't sort of necessarily hang out, but we all knew that they were there. Mm-hmm. So you've stayed there. I mean, often like you hear, I mean, we are, like I said, we're a mobile community, but, you know, you went to high school there, you grew up there, uh, you went to school there. Uh, I know that you went to Rogers Williams, which is right down the road in Rhode Island, but you stayed yep. in that area. And you're yeah. really not only staying in that area, you put down roots and seem committed to making a difference in that community. Why? Um, I think that it's, for me, I saw some issues regarding inequality, uh, regarding access to health, um, that if I had the chance to make a difference uh, in a community that I lived in, that I loved, um, that I should take that opportunity up. And when the opportunity came, you know, last year to lead the day-to-day operations of TCC, of the Triangle Community Center, um, it seemed like a great fit. Um, It's, you know, I I love the area. I want to see it prosper. I want to see it grow. But I also wanted to see it be affirming uh, to our population and our community. Now, you were a volunteer first. Yeah, yeah and, so I volunteered, I think, starting in 2014 um, with the Pride in the Park events and other smaller events throughout the year. 
Um, and at that point, Anthony Chrissy, who is the executive director, um, you know, approached me. Uh, at that point, I was working uh, in for-profit for an investor relations uh, company. Uh, he approached me about being on the board. So I started that process and was recruited to the board of directors in 2015. And since 2015, I've been an active board member. I've had everything from being the chair of finance, the chair of governance, uh, to being vice president, and then lastly, board president before you know, hopping off the board to uh, join on the team level uh, in the day-to-day operations. Did you find that experience, you know, because we, I love LGBT organizations that are run by LGBT organizations, but also provide that stepping stones for you to learn how to do it, Mm -hmm. particularly if it's Mm -hmm. somebody from the community. Did you see that as a combination of a mentorship, but also a learning and growth opportunity? Of course. Um, I had a lot of experience already in finance, being in investor relations, and also a bit of governance work as well. Um, So to me, it was really interesting to see how going from for-profit, publicly traded companies to a non-profit, sort of what that looks like and what the differences are. Um, So that's sort of why I hopped around from all the committees to try and gain as much of an understanding of the organization and how some nonprofits are run. Um, So when I took over, I was pretty comfortable that I would be able to do the job. Um, And originally, it was supposed to just be for six months while the uh, board looked at uh, all of the candidates to choose the best one. Uh, But then I sort of really liked it (laughs) Mm -hmm. and applied for the position myself. And I was doing a great job. I I implemented some changes that were needed um, and uh, some infrastructure changes as well. So I loved that kind of work. I'm continuing to do that kind of work here uh, so that we can create an infrastructure where we can continue to grow. You know, that was a big step. You know, often people will say, why do you want to work in the nonprofit world? You know, oh, you can volunteer and just give your time. But, you know, stay in the for-profit world, make that money, go and all these opportunities. What mm-hmm. was it that, you know, okay, first of all, did you ever see yourself working in the nonprofit world? And how difficult was it that the decision to go from being in for-profit to nonprofit? Because there's similarities, but it's also a very different animal. Yes. So there is a lot of similarities in terms of, like, managing, uh, but there are also some very stark sort of differences between the two. Um, You know, in terms of dealing with public companies, you're always sort of dealing with shareholders and making sure they're happy. Uh, In this case, you still have shareholders, but those shareholders are your community members, uh, your donor base, you know, the donors that give you a lot of, of of the donations that are needed to run the organization, as well as the small donors who are really involved in, you know, giving maybe $100 a year, volunteering about 30 hours a year. You know, those are still your, your constituents and your shareholders. Um, and you need to still stay attuned to what the community is asking for. And, you know, being able to, now that we're a smaller organization, we have remained very nimble. And I think that that nimbleness mm-hmm. has allowed us to um, pivot quickly, uh, particularly around the pandemic, 
to make sure that we're still providing our services and that we're continuing to add services that the community is asking for. Um, in terms of the biggest difference, I think that it's it's one of those things where nonprofit, you're constantly um, working against either bandwidth or against the budget. So you have mm -hmm. very finite resources, but you have an overwhelming amount of demand and need for the services that you're providing. So it's it's trying to be creative and efficient in the way that we use our funds here uh, to try to get as much out to the community as possible with the resources that we have. You know, we know that how much important representation matters. How do you, do you think that it means a lot to the community that instead of going out and finding one, and, and you know, and I don't have a problem. Sometimes you can find the best fit somewhere else. But the representation that you are of and from that geographic community, how important was that to the members who you serve? Um, I think that it is very important um, because they don't see the leader of an organization as an outsider, perhaps. Um, they see it as someone who's been in the community for quite a while, who has roots mm -hmm. here in the community and who understands uh, a little bit about what's going on. Um, and also it helps in terms of like, I knew a lot of, of our donor base already from being on the board and just from you know socializing around the area. So I understood a lot of the donor base uh, and was able to connect other potential donors to the organization. So, and get other people involved in being group leaders for new groups that we have going up. Like a lot of the times I'm tapping into my network of, of friends and acquaintances um, to see if, you know, if their interests sort of match with what we're trying to do uh, and get them connected to either our director of programs so that they can take up a conversation about, you know, maybe having some uh, resume workshops that we do now mm -hmm. through Indeed. Um, so it's those kinds of connections that are very helpful because those are local connections that we have here and those are local connections that I've fostered uh, through either my network and being in the area for quite a while. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, okay, what, uh, you're there now, okay, and now mm -hmm. you, you've rose up the rank and now I, I like that you said that you said, I like doing this, and you wanted to do <laughs> that job. Were they sitting back, did somebody sort of say, you know, it's about time you decide you're in it, was it, was it, did you have like a secret cheer team who was hoping that you would like it enough that you would want to continue the job? I I did. So there were several people on the board who were very excited that I put my hat into the the ring per se for the position itself. Um, and you know, some of my friends thought that it was a great sort of opportunity and a great fit. Um, so I did have a couple of cheerleaders that uh, pushed me along or gave me the nudge that I needed to put my name in and sort of commit to it. Um, so, yeah, I did have that, and I, and I thank them uh, for, for giving me that nudge that I needed um, because it's, you know, I, I never saw myself in nonprofit, so to mm -hmm. me it wasn't necessarily an option. Um, you know, I thought of myself as just a board member who was just there for as a resource to whoever was at the helm. 
uh, but never quite saw myself as the leader of the organization. Um, but I'm very happy that uh, I got that nudge and that I'm here. Well, yeah, that's good. I mean, you know, it's important. It's really important in these times when, and I know that you've seen it, and I'm sure that you connect with, with other EDs across the country that, you know, there are some centers that are thriving, but there's some who are really struggling, not only, I mean, and it even goes before the pandemic, but that didn't help because I know that some, like when the economy wasn't the best, like the donors that you used to have from industry and stuff, they looked at it and they sort of stepped back. When you're looking at your donor base, you know, because it's like six on one hand and one hand, many of them cut and looked at more diverse things to do it. But then we've also had this embracing of the LGBTQ community where we have more organizations, more people, more visibility in the media coming out. Have you felt that impact on TCC? Yeah. So in 2020, our budget was cut by about 20 to 30 percent um, in terms of donations that we had coming through the door. Um, and I was actually just looking at this. Um, we had a much lower average donation uh, over $50 and a much mm -hmm. lower average donation for those who gave under $50. And not only that, but we also had less people giving in a year uh, for those two sections. Um, what really helped us, though, was foundations that really stepped up and, you know, if they had some extra funds that were not allocated in the previous year, you know, they all put them into COVID relief grants um, that were for specific purposes of just general operating uh, purposes, um, which really helped sort of give organizations the uh, the the ability to really put those dollars into the services and programs that really needed the support. Um, so a lot, and also we were, we were able to receive PPP. So we were very, you know, happy mm -hmm. with that and happy that we were able to receive those federal funds. But yeah, a lot of, a lot of smaller organizations, you know, weren't as fortunate and a lot of them lost a lot of their funding and, you know, some closed. Um, so, you know, the ones that were remaining, had to pick up um, all of those, you know, clients and uh, that were going to those services. Thankfully, around here, uh, the New Haven Pride Center uh, made it through the pandemic, which is awesome. So they were able to to keep all of their client load and continue to provide those services. Um, but I think True Colors, uh, which is in Connecticut as well, did not. Mm -hmm. And I believe they're going through a restructure now. Um, but I don't believe that they're currently providing services. Um, so I believe a lot of those clients are still going to New Haven Pride Center for that. Um, mm -hmm. Because after, after all, even if, if an organization closes, the people are still there in need of services. So you have to react quickly and figure out what you can do and how you can help. Excellent. We're going to take our first break here. And when we come back, I want to talk more specifically about the center. So we'll be right back.
This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. And we're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And we're talking about the Triangle Community Center with their executive director, um, Edson Rivas. Edson, you know, what programs are the foundation, the bedrock programs of the Triangle Community Center? And what did you have to let go because of the pandemic? So back in 1990, when we were founded, we started off as an all-volunteer organization um, with the goal of providing peer support and social groups for the community, um, because that wasn't necessarily around in the area. There were a lot of groups and peer support in New York City because that's a huge hub, but there wasn't really much around here. Uh, So that's why the organization started or one of the reasons for why the organization started. We have kept those groups going uh, and have continued to add on to them. So I think now we are at more than 15 uh, groups that meet on a monthly basis, whether that's uh, every single week, every other week, once a once a month um, that range from anywhere from social groups, which are our games night, our nerd night, uh, a lesbian group, a woman group, uh, and we also have peer support. Uh, so we have a non-binary group that is uh, peer-led. We also have a transgender and gender non-conforming youth forum that is led by an LCSW, a licensed certified social worker. Um, and we also, of course, have the recovery groups that are very LGBTQ specific and uh, sort of cater to the experiences of our community. Um, those continue to uh, to meet at the center uh, in a hybrid model now. So because of the pandemic, everything moved over to the virtual model. So we had Zoom accounts created uh, for all of them to use. And now that the center is open uh, Monday through Friday during normal business hours, um, the uh, group leaders now have the option of being in person and use our technology here at the center to also put on Zoom uh, and do a hybrid model of their groups. Um, in addition to the groups, we also have a case management team um, that uh, helps uh, any client that comes through the door uh, get in, in touch with either uh, internal resources. We have a financial assistance fund here that could be used from anywhere from uh, emergency medical bills, health uh, issues to, you know, your first and last of, the, of, uh, of uh, an apartment if you are uh, unhoused or instably housed um, to, you know, anything else that you could possibly think of that you need financial assistance for, we have that fund. And last year, we went from having an emergency food assistance uh, food pantry to now a full-time food pantry here in the center. Um, you know, our case management program 
uh, helps individuals who would like to change the gender markers and names on all of their documentation. So we have that process as well uh, and can get them connected to resources out externally, whether those are a psychiatrist, uh, any sort of medical uh, needs. Uh, that's what they do. In addition to that, we also have a housing navigator that's through the two, the 211 system in Connecticut um, that is LGBTQ affirming and is specifically connected to all of the resources for our, our unhoused LGBTQ population. Um, so that's, that's case management. Uh, and then as part of our clinical team, we also have mental health services, which started back in late 2019. Uh, and that doubled in size uh, in terms of clients that we served uh, in 2020. And it continues to be one of our fastest growing programs. Uh, we have a licensed marriage and family therapist that oversees uh, four interns uh, who provide therapy and counseling to our clients for free. Um, we've sort of forgone the fees. We were on a sliding scale, but because of the pandemic and, and issues with people being unemployed, we decided to go away with that. And currently we're providing everything for free. Um, so we're also doing that. Uh, and because we understand that our community doesn't necessarily work in a silo from the rest of the population, mm -hmm. we also have a training institute. Uh, and our training institute is specifically geared uh, in providing an LGBTQ 101, which are we like to call sort of like the basics of understanding our community. Uh, so, so, yeah, so it goes through, you know, uh, language, pronouns, the importance of calling people by their chosen names, um, to certain experiences like what trans experiences could look like uh, to sort of take away some of the myths um, that, you know, people have. Um, and it, the goal of the Training Institute is to really provide a safe space for those who are attending our, our trainings uh, to ask questions that they would otherwise be uncomfortable asking out in the public and to work with them, to work through, you know, why perhaps some of those questions may be problematic or why the language that they use may be problematic in a way that is supportive and that creates a change that is going to stick as opposed to sort of, you know, being aggressive about it, I guess, and, and you know, being confrontational. So we, we have a training institute that in 2020, I believe we trained more than 1,200 individuals, um, and we've been able to, I think this year we're going to surpass that by a lot, too. So our, our coordinator of community and corporate learning is definitely very busy, uh, and they love training others, so they're super happy about that. Um, what else do we have? I think we have, I mean, in addition to that, we also put on a Pride event. Uh, that is every June. We call it Pride in the Park. This year, we couldn't have it because that's usually a 7,000-person uh, event that we have mm -hmm. for a day. So instead, we created Fairfield or we went with Fairfield County Pride, where we created more than 14 events throughout the month of June that were all sort of COVID safe. Uh, so there were much smaller events. A lot of them were capped at 50. I think our biggest one was an outdoor women's music festival that happened up in Danbury that was about 200 people, uh, and it was about seven hours long. So, yeah, so we were trying to 
give our communities uh, the opportunity to meet in person, uh, to have that sense of community and to talk face to face to someone uh, because some of them have been isolated uh, for quite a while now, for over a year. And I think that you know, though a um, virtual event would have been safe, you know, would have been more on the conservative side, um, we really needed to to see our community face to face. Well, you know, and I think that we've been like so shut in, you know, and and last year with so many prides not happening doing virtual, you know, it is it's like mm-hmm. to be able to get out and go and see them. But in doing the virtual, have you found that you've been able to reach a broader group, like maybe someone who wasn't ready to come into a center, but through interacting through one of your programs um, virtually, that maybe it, it gave them connections to other ones and also or gave them the language to describe their lives. Yes. One of the things that we saw during the pandemic when all of our um, case management, mental health, and programs were virtual is that we actually were able to reach more individuals. Um, We had individuals coming in, I think, from Florida, coming in from New York. I think the the furthest was somewhere in Canada that joined, I believe it was our bisexual and allies group. Um, but, you know, some of these individuals who come from far, sometimes they have a fear that some, if they join a group within their community, uh, at a community center like ours, um, that someone in there will recognize them. Um, and mm. these are probably individuals that are not quite out yet, but that are exploring sort of where they fit within the entire spectrum of being LGBTQ and gender and sexuality. So to them, sort of going outside of their immediate immediate demographics or uh, geographic area is very helpful uh, because they have the ability to explore without being outed. Um, so we were seeing some people or a lot of more people from outside of our state and outside of our demographic reach uh, using our services or geographic reach using our services virtually, uh, which is great. Uh, and we, I think moving forward, we are looking to continue the, ver- the hybrid model because it is very um, useful for those individuals who sometimes, you know, can't get out of work in time to come to a 7 p.m. meeting. They could hop on a phone and meet virtually through our Zoom accounts. Uh, so it is, I think it's, you know, one of the things that is going to stick around from the pandemic is the ability to meet virtually um, because it does, it does have, it, have its upsides. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, but to have that physical space, mm-hmm. there is there is something that happens from it. Like I know um, uh, when we opened one in one of our in Ferndale, the affirmations. I mean, here is this building, which is like you know, and some people it takes them a minute to come in, but it says something about that locality. And I, um, I can tell you way back in the day, I, you know, I, I did some volunteer work with HRC, and when they opened their building, it was like suddenly there's something about that space that, you know, it's like 
No, we're not, you know, running around in the background. Or how people, often people want to think that all that LGBTQ people do is party and go to bars. No, here's a space <laughs> and here's a, you know, where you could go. I mean, don't we wish. You know, but how important do you think it has been for that community to have the Triangle Community Center? Um, I think that it's been very important for the community to have our physical space here. Um, we are not shy about who we are. Um, so, you know, our space is very prominent. Um, it is out on a very busy street. And, you know, when you come into our space, there are, you know, probably 20 flags that are hanging from our beams, uh, all, of, all of them representing different communities within the LGBTQ community. Uh, we're still adding flags, too, because it's like a new flag comes mm-hmm. up every now and then that we just, you know, hang up as well. Uh, but to go along with that, we have, you know, uh, papers that sort of go through each one of the flags and like sort of what community it represents and why it was created and all that stuff. Because it is important to have a physical presence. It's sort of that whole thing of representation. You know, representation matters and holding physical space also matters. Um, and holding a, a physical space that is affirming to our community is a huge, huge, huge deal for our community because a lot of the times, you know, people within our community don't find those affirming spaces and don't find those safe spaces anywhere else, um, whether that's at work, whether that's, you know, going to the grocery store, whether that's wherever it is, you know, they uh, have a fear of being misgendered, they have a fear of, you know, people staring, they have a fear of all these things that don't happen in a space uh, that is created by organizations like ours. Um, so they can come here, be who they are, know that they're going to be supported, knowing that they're going to be affirmed. And that is a huge reliever on some of the you know, mental stress that they have on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Now, as you, as you see that, I mean, and we are, there are ways that we're more visible, okay, I mean, mm-hmm. in the media and everything. And then we had, like, the golden years, you know, where we were going to the White House every minute, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, we were so visible. Then we went to a time where it was like we were, again, under attack. And now yeah. here we're coming back out. And, I mean, we have a lot of people to look at and, and, and like I said, visibility at all levels. Mm-hmm. You know, without being political, because, you know, you don't want to mess up things. But what, yeah. how do you, you know, I mean, I can recall under the previous administration having friends of mine say, you know, I think maybe I should go back in the closet. How yeah, and I don't think, I don't think that, that you, Yeah. No, I mean, um, tell me, I mean, if what you've heard and, and what what do you say? I think that one of the biggest things that came out of the previous uh, administration uh, or resulted from the previous administration is a chipping away at our community's trust in federal and state agencies. Uh, And not necessarily that those federal state agencies necessarily supported uh, that kind of um, political view, uh, but, you know, when you see it at the top, 
you get a sense that it's going to trickle down to uh, all of you know the government agencies or whatnot. So what we started to see is you know a lot of our community having uh, doubts about getting resources from state or federal agencies, um, you know, having doubts that they're going to be affirmed in those agencies. Um, and it's not, again, it's not necessarily that those agencies are perhaps homophobic or not affirming, but the sense of it was that, or what was perceived is that it's going to trickle down to everything else, therefore the trust was eroded. Um, mm -hmm. So a big part of that is, you know, trying to rebuild that trust with our community uh, because the resources that are available through federal and state agencies are, are, are like they're enormous. There's a lot of them there. So for us to be able to tap into that is important to help our community. Um, that is probably one of the biggest things that I saw um, and perhaps like the most uh, the saddest, I guess. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. because sometimes, you know, the loudest voices, uh, win and the loudest voices are the ones that get heard the most. And it's not necessarily that the loudest voices are the majority. Um, it may be the minority, but however, since they're the loudest voice, you sort of internalize things that perhaps it doesn't apply broadly, but that's, that's the sense that you get. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, you know, and it's like, and how do you, how do you encourage people or to say, you know, we have to stay in this fight, you know, we still have to be visible and talk about issues mm -hmm. that matter to us. We still have families, we still have youth, you know, mm -hmm. we still have yeah. all of these things that affect us. That you know, going back in the closet to me is not really an an option. That's why I love how you said, like, you've got all the flags out there. So, like, yep. not only are we here and we're queer, mm. but we're not going anywhere. And no, we're not. Like, I think and, it, and it goes back to that whole thing of, like, the loudest voice, you know. A lot mm -hmm. of the politicians in Connecticut, they're like, what can we do to help? And I was like, talk. Talk about how you're being LGBTQ affirming. Talk about how the head of XYZ agency, what they're doing to sort of like combat this notion that, you know, trust has been eroded because a previous administration was not so LGBTQ friendly. You know, start talking, start being loud, start pushing back in a more sort of like uh, uh, in a more uh, visible way, because that's that's what's necessary. You know, if, if you could be supportive and affirming all you want, like in the privacy of whatever, but you have to start talking. You have to start publicly saying things that are firm communities, whether that's our community, the LGBTQ community, or whether that's other minorities, like, you know, uh, POC communities, uh, Asian communities, like all of those, like you have to talk because Again, it goes back to the whole notion of the loudest voices are the ones that are heard. If, if that's the name of the game, like you have to start talking. You have to start being public about it. You have to start, you know, conversations. Um, that's, that's what we are talking and sort of encouraging our politicians to do. Now, is there also that part because as an LGBTQ community center, and yes, you know, 
we stand, and you know, you and I mm-hmm. and other people who are part of the BIPOC community, are, we stand at the intersectionality where often mm-hmm. some of our community, it's like, well, you know, LGBTQ people only stand up if it's about, you know, marriage equality, and they don't. But we know that every day we're walking in that and we're standing up in that. What role do you see a center like the Triangle Community Center in trying to focus on that intersectionality? Like, hey, I'm, I'm a woman, I'm female, I identify as female, I'm African-American, and I'm queer. But that also means mm-hmm. that I'm concerned about everything else that's going on in my community. And how do we get our communities and through our centers to focus on and, and help pull all that together? I think it's it's trying to find commonalities in the same struggle because uh, no matter if you're LGBTQ, no matter if you're uh, BIPOC or if you're Black or Asian, there is still a sense of oppression that is both structural um, and that you sort of see and feel sometimes from day to day. So it's trying to figure out that commonality uh, and hold that as a binder to that, you know, our struggle is your struggle, your struggle is our struggle. Um, As an example of sort of finding that commonality in uh, the recent sort of slew of um, laws that are being put into place that are very anti-trans, it's finding the commonality of, you know, talking to parents about why this law, even if they don't have trans children, could potentially affect them in whatever state they are in. Because technically, the laws that are being put into place are limiting a parent's right to choose uh, what sort of health services and medical services their children could, could tap into. And that's something that affects all parents and not just parents of LGBTQ individuals. You know, it's the government's ability to tell you no when you know that a medical uh, either procedure or, you know, uh, affirming health care for your trans child, um, that's not, no longer an option to you. It's finding those commonalities where, you know, your fight as an LGBTQ parent is no longer just your fight as an LGBTQ parent, but also the fight of another parent who sees that that's an attack on their ability to choose what is right for their child when it comes to their health care, when it comes to their medical care. Um, so it's, it's those things that, you know, we have to start finding so that it's not just an LGBTQ struggle. It's not just a, a POC struggle. It is our struggle. Because we don't you know, we don't live in silos. I'm not just a gay man. Mm-hmm. I'm a gay man who happens to be Latino, um, who you know is an immigrant, and I have there's many layers to everyone. Um, so it, it's trying to find the commonality within the layers of everyone. You know, recently I had talking to um, Deshana Neal from Delaware, and you know she had gone and fought for her t- Medicaid because she had a trans mm-hmm. daughter, but in talking about what Medicaid was denying as far as treatment, it opened the door for so many people. And as you were talking mm-hmm. about that, it was like, because she was like, you know, I just had to do it. But in doing it, she was standing for her trans daughter, but she also, I mean, there are a lot of people who don't understand what Medicaid can or can't do, and 
might not get the treatment they they are are entitled to because of they think it's not there or no one will advocate for them. So, I mean, that's like you're saying. We have to recognize and sometimes in doing it for our community, we're doing it for the whole community. And you never know. Exactly. I mean, but it's just, it's just like phenomenal. Well, we're going to take our second break, and then we're going to talk a little bit more about this new day. So we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. We're back, okay? They're saying, you know, depending on the day, with a mask or without a mask, you know, I mean, that we can start to come together. And I know that you said that you were doing things at a smaller level to sort of help people mm-hmm. get in contact with it because I know the isolation particularly, you know, can be can be so hard. What when you, what is the biggest thing that you're looking forward to being able to do for your community through the center? So one of the things that I was looking forward to do, because we already done it, is to open our space up again. Um, and mm-hmm. thankfully, we were able to do that, uh, I believe, last month, the beginning of July. Um, so our mm-hmm. space is now open to the public, you know, Monday through Fridays, 10 to 6, during our normal business hours. And it's also open to all of our groups, uh, should the group leader decide to bring the groups back in person. Um, the groups run all sorts of times of the, uh, of the day. So they're here sometimes in the evenings, nights, and weekends. Um, and it's just, it just feels, you know, I came into the space and I started working from our office here back in, um, I would say, September of last year or August of last year. So I've been here during that time. Most of my team was working from home, but I've been here in the space with the front door open just in case anyone sort of walks through Mm. needing services. Mm -hmm. But I can't tell you how better the space feels when there are groups meeting in person here, when we have people that come through the door that just want to hang out in our drop-in space uh, and like read a book or just like hang out, watch some Netflix. It, it, it brings life to a space when there are occupants occupying that space. Um, so that was one of the things that I was looking forward to, and I'm so happy. And we're, 
we're doing everything here to make our, our, our brand new space because we also opened a completely renovated uh, space in um, February of 2020, just in time of the pandemic. So we've been, it's sort of been sitting here, but now we have like plants, we have artwork up on the walls, we have, you know, string lights up on the ceiling. We're trying to make it feel homey because we want people to use it as their second home where they can get away mm-hmm. from whatever happens out in the environment that they're in and come here and feel that they can relax and be themselves without anyone sort of feeling the pressure of having to um, be someone that they're not. So mm-hmm. the other thing that I'm looking forward to is, you know, a fundraiser that we're finally having in person. You know, our biggest fundraiser happens every year in October. Last year it was uh, virtually, so it was uh, streamed through through the internet, which was interesting. Um, but this year we're, we're having it in person um, and we are figuring out the logistics of, of that. You know, it may be a vaccination required event um, just to keep everyone safe. Um, and we do have those protocols within our space here. So, you know, if you come into our space now, even if you're vaccinated, you still have to wear a mask at all times in our space. You have to sign into our space so that we can do contract tracing in case someone tests positive. And you're also taking your temperature. So, you know, we're taking precautions. We have new air filtration systems that are uh, through our HVAC system as well as standalone filters um, because we we want people to feel comfortable coming back to our space and starting to use our space here. Uh, so th- those are the things that make me really happy is just to see, you know, people using our space, even if it, they're just sitting there. You know, that's great. That's what we're here for. We're a community center. We're not supposed to be empty. <laughs> no, no. So we're, okay. we're encouraging people to come in. And we're, we're, you know, a lot of the events that we were hosting for the month of June, some of them did happen in our space. And we have a couple more coming up. We have a Chamber of Commerce uh, Networking Social coming up uh, in the fall that we're also going to host here. Um, you know, we want to get as many people through the doors in as safe a way as possible. Um, because we also love that people get to know us. They know, you know, where we are, what we look like, sort of what the vibe is, so that they can then talk to other individuals. And then you never know who you're going to meet out and about, who may need our services, or who may need our case management, who may need our mental health services. That you can simply say, oh, hey, you know, TCC is a great resource. Talk to them about it. Go to their space. See what you see. What see what can happen. Uh, so that's that's sort of where we're at, you know, it may sound really uh, corny, I guess to say, but I just, mm-hmm. I just like seeing people in our space and our, my team is back three days a week from the office and two days from home. Um, but most of them are here five days a week because they also mm-hmm. just like being in our space. What did you discover from COVID that about the community that you recognize needed to be addressed like i know like sometimes we recognize people who maybe aren't are living in a food desert or who need or the ability to check in on on one another what did you discover Mm -hmm. from covid and you said you know what we need to do this now and then continue to do that because it's part of taking care of our community our family the what we knew to be true in 2019 when we started our mental health services is that uh, mental health and the ability of uh, equal access or access that is um, 
available as an option to others uh, was necessary. Um, so what we then discovered in 2020 was that the pandemic exacerbated everyone's mental, or not everyone's, but a lot of our individuals' mental health. So that was probably one of the reasons for why our mental health services more than doubled. I think in late 2019, we had about 50 clients, unique clients that we were seeing. Um, and in 2020, we served more than 140. Um, so that was a pretty steep sort of uh, push uh, and growth in that sort of service. Uh, and we saw that, you know, the people that were able to afford going to a therapist when they lost their job, they were no longer able to do that. Um, and those individuals who were never able to afford, you know, therapy or counseling, you know, we stepped in and said, okay, well, they need an option to, you know, mental health is not just for individuals who can pay for it. And those services are expensive. I was just looking at uh, therapy, uh, looking for a therapist myself, and that's expensive. Um, so that is one of the needs that we saw that we were just like, we, we have to do this. You know, it's, it's something that we are continually investing in. So, you know, we just onboarded an electronic health records uh, solution, software solution, uh, because that is something that we're f focused on and the board is committed to is providing mental health services to our community that are affirm that is affirming and that is supportive. Um, the other thing that we notice is that uh, a lot of people in 2020 were food insecure uh, with everyone mm -hmm. losing their, their jobs. A lot of people didn't have a steady source of income. Uh, and particularly around our area, the uh, cost of living is very high. Fairfield County is notoriously a high cost of living. So once those, um, once the, the income uh, was gone, you know, all of the food pantries around here were working at or above their bandwidth or their capacity. So we got into, you know, at least being able to provide food assistance to the clients that were coming to us for case management services. Um, so that's why we went from having an emergency food pantry uh, in 2019 to having a solidified permanent food pantry in 2020, and that will continue moving forward. Um, so we're, we're, we constantly have, you know, the pantry stocked up, uh, it is now involved in our fundraising efforts as well so that we can be sure that we have the, it has the funding that it needs to continue um, because we never know, you know, with the second variant coming around, mm -hmm. if the second variant takes hold, you know, unfortunately, I don't want to think about it, but and I hope it doesn't happen, but if we go into another lockdown, you know, that will sort of affect the ways that uh, companies are hiring, um, and we may need to go back to um, being at home. Um, so that is going to be another necessity for those individuals. Um, so, so yeah, it's you know, it's those are the two things that sort of stood out to me uh, when I took over mid-pandemic last year. You know, our centers are. You know, we talk about we have our chosen families. And our centers mm -hmm. often are our chosen home. In this time, you know, as you're looking and you're seeing, like, okay, who's going to give money? Foundation, you know, maybe some corporate ones. And has this provided a way for, like, the everyday 
person from our community who comes in there that maybe like have you seen an uptake like maybe they can't give that they write that big check at the deal because at the dinner or whatever because their income is done. Has have you seen an uptake in people wanting to volunteer, donate to the food pantry, or do things that to help other members of their community in ways that would support the center? Yes, we've seen you know uh, already more uh, support from. Our corporate partners, you know, they were very supportive during Pride Month uh, in terms of making sure that they were involved in our sponsorships and supporting our organization in other ways and making sure that their ERG or BRG groups are included in all of our volunteer opportunities. Um, so they, you know, our community has come out swinging and the ally community has come out swinging. Um, and they were also doing that for uh, 2020. You know, we were still able to fundraise to help support our core uh, services. And thankfully, we didn't have to cut anyone from our payroll. We didn't have to let anyone go. And we didn't have to reduce any of the programs, any of our case management, and any of our mental health services. Uh, If anything, we increased our capacity during 2020. And that was thankfully because you know, people rallied around us and they supported us in any way possible. You know, if someone wasn't able to give $20, they rallied their friends who still had, you know, were fully employed. They rallied their friends who were perhaps not uh, familiar with what we do. They rallied their friends to give $25 a piece. Um, so it's, it's sort of like being creative and they were creative and they helped us support. And this year alone, I think we've, through the month of June, we gained 250 new friends who we didn't have before, um, who were brand new to our community, who've never never given to us, who've never donated anything to us in the past, you know, that that shows that not just our community, but our allied community is also in the fight, and that's great to see. Now, you know, I'm usually when people think of, of centers, like, they might think about uh, coming out groups, they think about kids, um, health services. What about the seniors, the elders in your community? What does what do you do for them, and what do you see? So, one of the things that we see is that um, since that community tends to be not as tech savvy, um, a lot of the surveys that have been going out recently are all online, which makes it very difficult for them to fill out. Um, so there is a lack of information, of data, of statistics, of demographics uh, for that. Seeing that, you know, we've started making calls to, you know, living facilities around the area to anyone within, you know, our, our donor database or program database who is above a certain age to try and gauge exactly what the need of that population is. And we've already started implementing uh, programming that is specifically geared towards the elderly population. As an example, we just started talk, uh, implementing or we implemented a pen pal program uh, with a partner organization down in D.C. where we uh, team up their elderly uh, clients with our uh, young adults who are part of our programming, part of our case management, um, to start a pen pal. Uh, so they write letters to each other. And I think right now we have 12, uh, 24 active, so 12 
couples, if you will, or 12 partners mm -hmm. uh, in that program. Um, and we are trying to see what else we can provide. So we started reaching out to the, the uh, care communities around here. Um, and what we found is that they don't know what part of their populations identify as LGBTQ. Um, mm. And what we're finding is that a lot of those individuals who are above a certain age are perhaps still very uncomfortable um, with um, outing themselves, if you will, uh, because they come from a very different um, uh, era where coming out wasn't a great story, where coming out could lead to some you know, physical harm. So they still hold on to that. Uh, and, and it's hard to gauge um, need when populations don't necessarily um, tell you that they're there. So we're trying to figure out ways to get around that uh, because we do know that they exist and we do know that they sometimes they're, they're isolated um, because there's a lack of programming in the communities that they live in. Um, so that's, that's something that we are working on. We also have a coffee talk group um, that meets, I believe, twice a month uh, during the day where they just chit-chatter in our space. And, it, you know, it's over a certain age, most likely. And, you know, we are actively working on trying to bring more programming that is aimed at that community. And in addition, we're also, uh, you know, we do a great job between the ages of 13 through 35. Um, but lately, we've had a lot of interest in youth programming under the age of 13. Um, you know, we had a lot of parents reaching out saying, you know, you, I see everything that's 13 plus, but my child is 10, my child is 9, and I want to get them involved in something. So we started a youth chat for people or for kids under the age of 13 uh, that is monitored by my director of programs. Uh, who is an LMSW. So it, it's sort of figuring out the need, being nimble, being, a, being agile, and being able to, you know, bring programming and see uh, and tweak whatever it is that we're doing to sort of fit the need of, of, of the community. Mm -hmm. Have you learned a lot more about your, the community? I mean, is it bigger and more dynamic than what, what, what you knew before you got into that role and had to start to do these things? I've learned a lot. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I, you know, one of the things that we see through our training institute, uh, particularly if we're training other people from the LGBTQ community, is that, you know, their biggest thing is, well, I'm already, I'm gay, or I'm bi, or I'm a lesbian, so why do I need to take this training? And one of the things that I learned and I was very humbled about is that, yes, you are gay, you are bi, you are a lesbian but you have experience only with your identity yeah, and what yeah. that means to you. That doesn't make you an expert on every identity that is within the rainbow of being LGBTQ. Um, so there is still a steep learning curve of, of you know, trans, non-binary, non-conforming, uh, and that, you know, you, that I've, very quickly have learned. Um, so, and I considered myself to be very uh, knowledgeable on, you know, these communities, but there's always something, you know, language is constantly changing and evolving. So it's a constant, um, it's a constant learning opportunity. Mm -hmm. You know, I love that you use your pronouns and, you know, I use my pronouns and you know how often some people can't quite yet 
I don't get it. Uh, it's hard for me to, to use they and them. Is that one of the conversations that you find yourself engaged in and having with other members of our community? Because you would think, you know, our community should be, we should be 100% in, but sometimes we're not. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's always a conversation that's very interesting um, because sometimes people are just, you know, set in their ways. Um, but, you know, it, they're cutting themselves short because they're, they're cutting themselves from learning beyond what they know. Um, and that's the biggest thing, um, that we try to, to encourage in our trainings is that, yes, you know, you are learning something new and you may not like to, but, you know, in your everyday life, you learn something different, something new. Language is constantly changing. You know, we're using LOL now, LMFAO now. Like, mm-hmm. and those have become part of our vocabulary. So add that, add pronouns to that. Add, you know, what, what does it cost? You're respecting someone's wishes to be, to use the pronouns that they feel most comfortable with. And it doesn't affect you in any way. And it's not a burden to you to say, oh, okay, I'm going to use he, him for someone who may uh, outwardly portray, you know, uh, female characteristics or more feminine characteristics, but they want to be referred to as he, him. So it's that whole thing. And it's like just being able to respect someone's wishes to, you know, use another name or use different pronouns than what you would assume would be their pronouns. Um, so, yeah, I mean, here uh, on all of our Zoom accounts, we have our name and our pronouns, um, and our board uses pronouns, and we have our pronouns and our e-signature as well, um, because it just invites the conversation, it invites others who may not feel comfortable um, just outwardly saying their pronouns to then feel comfortable and say, oh, perfect, now I can mm-hmm. start, I've, I feel more comfortable being myself. Uh, and even when we're talking to like corporations, you know, a lot of them have to jump through a lot of hoops to just get, you know, certain things uh, passed through that are, are more gender affirming or more LGBTQ affirming. So it's always like their staff want to know what can I do now be, be, before all of this sort of mm-hmm. goes into effect. And it's like, okay, well, you can start by simply putting your pronouns in your signature. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that invites the conversation. And you never know who on your team or, you know, which of your managers is going to say, thank you for that. That, that means a lot. You know, and I think, too, that comes again back to the center, that if you have this place, uh, maybe you're walking through to drop off a check or to make a donation mm-hmm. or you're coming to an event, but you come into this place where you see people accepting, you know, so you might look at someone and think that you want to put this this gender on them, and they use their pronouns. You've got all these mm-hmm. different flags up to which make them like, well, wait a minute, I don't know what that one is about. That it helps that conversation. It helps yeah. move things down the road, you know. And that's the only way that it is. And and in some ways, it's not. Sometimes you do have to be confrontational, but this is a non-confrontational way mm-hmm. that you're just home. Mm-hmm. And this is Bobby, and Bobby is identifies with the pronouns he, him, or this is, mm-hmm. you know, Joe, and Joe is they, them. And it just sort of it mm-hmm. becomes natural. It's easier for you to do 
and then to take it back to maybe where you work, your community, your neighbors, you know, because that's really mm-hmm. how we make change, leaning over that sense saying to someone, hey, by the way, you know, you know mm-hmm. uh, and that's how we make change. You know, we, we move hearts and minds. It doesn't always have to be a huge monumental change, but sometimes we just have to move them incrementally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, yeah, it's a, a drop it, over time makes a huge difference. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. so it's, it's those, you know, smallest things that you can do now that you yourself as a person in a corporate environment or in a other nonprofit environment or in your group of friends um, could simply just say, hey, you know, introduce yourself as Edson Heham. Perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, you get the conversation started, and sometimes just getting the conversation started is an important step. So if you were to meet a young person and they were like, you know, I think I want to do what you do, or why would I want to do what you do, what would you tell them? I think uh, I would say that it is rewarding, um, but it is a lot of work. Um, Being able to sustain an organization, a nonprofit, um, is a lot of work. And I don't think I've ever worked so hard in my life, but I also don't think I've ever been um, as happy with the work that I've done. Um, And it's a commitment. It's really, truly a commitment to a cause and a commitment to the community. Um, So I would simply tell them, perfect, you know, find, find that passion and go with that. Like, keep focusing on that passion and you will be able to make great change. Mm-hmm. And then from the other side, like you has said, you were in the for-profit world. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, often somebody will say, like, you know, I don't see how I can, you know, jump over here and, and to do this. You know, I just don't see how I can do this. But you found skills and abilities that transferred and that helped you be able to do this work. How would you encourage others to like maybe, and and, you know, really because of of the pandemic, many of us have been going like, you know, let me reassess what I'm doing with my life and is this a place that I can go? Um, What would you say to them? Oof. Um, I would say that, you know, nonprofit is not for everyone. However, um, the desire to have an effect that goes beyond yourself um, can lead to some very interesting opportunities and career changes like it did for me. Um, You know, it was... I was on the board, I knew the organization, I loved what we were doing, and then when the opportunity came around uh, for me to get more involved, I took it because it it was a passion. It is a passion, and it's, you know, I'm here and I love doing it. So I would simply just say, you know, just be open to having a change that could be beneficial. Um, mm-hmm. Not necessarily... 
just simply like financial or monetary, but also, you know, we're looking at it in a wholesome way. You know, there are people making millions of dollars uh, that hate what they're doing, but they're making mm-hmm. millions of dollars and that's a trade-off for them. And they're okay with that trade-off. But if you are looking for something that has more of an impact on the world as opposed to yourself, you know, nonprofit could perhaps be a place for you. So what's upcoming with TCC? And (laughs) what's the best way if someone feels like, you know, maybe they want to write a check, and we always take checks, (laughs) but if they want to volunteer or learn about the program, or maybe even see if this is the right place for them to come in and give their time. What's the best way for them to find out what's going on and to contact you guys? So the best way to do that is either to go through our website, ctpridecenter.org, or follow us on any of our social media platforms at CT Pride Center. We are constantly um, putting up posts and updates on new programming that we're offering, um, events that are coming up, fundraisers that we're doing. In August, uh, actually this month, we are doing our fundraiser for our uh, emergency assistance fund, which is about 20, that we're hoping to fundraise about $20,000. And that goes towards a fund that is directly uh, tied to direct assistance to all of our clients, whether that's mm-hmm. uh, food assistance, whether that is uh, health, uh, uh, managing health bills or emergency health bills, whether that's getting someone who is unhoused right now, housed temporarily while other resources are tapped into. Uh, all of those funds go directly to the clients themselves. And last year, we used about $18,000 to provide direct assistance to our clients. So this year, we're, we're upping that by two uh, because we understand that the colder months of the year tend to be the months that uh, most people have the biggest need. Um, so we are gearing up for that. We also have our biggest fundraiser coming up on October 15th, which will be in a hybrid model. So it will be in person in Stanford on October 15th uh, in the evening and also will be streamed live uh, on our website, I believe. Uh, And that is so that people who are not yet comfortable being in person have a chance to participate. Um, So all of our silent auction items will be up on our website and accessible to everyone to see. All of our, you know, our one and a half hour program will be streamed live and that will include our live appeal and live auction items, uh, including some testimonials from clients that we have or that we've helped along the way. Um, And then we get into the holiday months. So we usually do a food drive for our clients during the ho- and anyone who reaches out to us during the holidays uh, where we provide food assistance that's specifically geared towards you know Thanksgiving, Christmas, that kind of thing. Um, and we have a drag brunch that will end the year off. Um, so we have a lot coming up. Uh, all of the information is available at ctpridecenter.org or just follow us on our social media. Okay, wow. Well, I'm going to be following you. I hope to get that way. I'm supposed to do a Northeast tour sometime this fall, you know, and hit New Jersey, and and I hope I am going to go to New York, New Jersey. Hopefully I'll get up to Connecticut. That's an, um, thank you. Um, it has thank been you. A, a joy. Like I said, my I had a, one of my role models who was an aunt 
a spinster woman, <laughs> as they would say back then. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. who was from Connecticut, and it was one of she was that person that we didn't go to see much, but I always knew liked me and cared about me as I was and encouraged me to be myself. So um, keep doing the good work. Keep fighting the good fight. Thank you very much. And, you know, this, this, what you're doing, giving exposure to organizations like ours is also Mm -hmm. really important. And, you know, one of the things that I tell individuals who don't necessarily have the means to donate in terms of, of money is share anything that you like on our website, on our uh, social media pages, share that. Mm -hmm. You know, you never know who in your networks or who you're connected to on Facebook or on Instagram or on LinkedIn. You never know who that might interest and you never know who may need our services. And that to us is also really great and helpful because we're here to serve the community. We're here to help the community. So the more people know that we're here, and the more people understand what services and resources we have, the better it is for us as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and really, and that's it. That's what I, you know, our, with our center, I often tell people, I have gone to other places and there's someone who used to live here and they'd say, do they still have that hotline? Do they still have to do that? And then guess what? When I was on the board of affirmations, you'd see a check come in. You know, we're mobile. We have to put it out there, and I'm glad, always glad to talk to to people doing the work. So, Edson, thank you. Um, and, and thank you so much for 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 being. I want to thank my guest, the executive director of the Triangle Community Center in Norwalk, Connecticut, Edson Rivas. Edson took the reins during the pandemic but he's gone in each day to be there for community members. The center has hosted virtual events and small in-person activities, keeping the community safe and connected, learning from the challenges and celebrating their diverse community. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.